Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Triangulation, episode 433, recorded Friday, March 3rd, 2023. The father of modern genomics. Listeners of this program get an ad-free version if they're members of Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all of our shows, plus membership in the Club Twit Discord, a great clubhouse for Twit listeners. And finally, the Twit Plus feed with shows like Stacy's Book Club, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz, and more. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. And thanks for your support. It's time for triangulation. Boy, we have a really good one for you this week, folks. Uh, I have long been aware of Dr. George Church. In fact, I uh, tried to get into his personal genome project some years ago. He's a professor of genetics at Harvard uh, Medical School, professor of health sciences and technology at Harvard University and MIT. He uh, is often called the father of modern genomics. His pioneering work has contributed to the development of DNA sequencing and genome engineering technologies. He's received many awards, many patents, over 550 publications. Uh, a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. As I mentioned, he initiated the Personal Genome Project, started over 20 companies. His most recent company, Nebula, offers gene sequencing, full genome sequencing, to you and me for just a few hundred dollars. Let's welcome Dr. George Church. Welcome. It's so nice. It's an honor, frankly, to to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking your lunch hour to join us. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Although you told me earlier you don't eat lunch, so thank you for right. But But this might be as time that you use for other things, so I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I know you're actually incredibly busy. Uh, I read the list of accomplishments, and, it, and I read the short list. Otherwise, this would be a much longer show. You, uh, but when you when you went to school, you studied zoology, not genomics. Zoology and chemistry. And yeah, chemistry. Right. Those are my degree. How yeah. did you move into genomics? I, uh, as I was finishing up those degrees as an undergraduate, I uh, did research in X-ray crystallography at the medical school at Duke. And that and that happened to be the first nucleic acid structure, meaning an RNA, uh, and did a little bit on DNA as well. And and I just got infatuated with. Uh, well, I typed in all of the tRNA sequences that were known at the time, and thought and folded them up, and you know, and I thought this would be a great thing to do for every, you know all the DNA in the world, uh, maybe maybe humans. Uh, and so then I started looking for a lab to do that in, and Wally Gilbert's lab uh, suggested itself for my graduate school. Was it the intellectual pleasure of it, or was it that you thought this could make a big difference in the world? I think it was a little of each. I mean, I was, you know, quite young at the time. I was about 19 or 20, and, and, and I think it was more on the intellectual side, but as I got you know, pretty almost as soon as I went to graduate school, I started thinking uh, about applications as well. Uh, and you found quite a few <laughs> in the subsequent uh, years. I mean, you've founded, I don't know, 50 companies. Uh, you've your, your research is very broad ranging. But is there, would you say, an overarching kind of mission statement or premise to what you're looking at? Uh, yeah, um, there's actually a mission statement on my website. I can't remember what it is exactly, but it was uh, um, technology development for that handles that ranges from basic uh, science to you know things that are positive uh, for society, and this includes reducing the cost of technology so they can be equitably distributed. Uh, you know, fairly even uh, the less less wealthy nations and individuals can benefit. In the forty years you've been studying this, there have been massive changes and shifts. Some of which yes. you've been involved in. And when yes. you when you talk about cost, I've seen your 
your graph, it beats Moore's law, doesn't it? The the cost of sequencing the human genome. Yes, it's been about a 20 million fold reduction in price and and a similar improvement in quality, uh, you know, over about a little over a decade or decade and a half. Yeah. Going from billions to hundreds, I guess. Right. From about three, three billion to 300. And at the same time, changing the, the, the original $3 billion genome was only kind of half a genome. Uh, each of us has contributions for the mother and father. This is as if you just had one of those or kind of a mismatch of the two. So clinical genomes today really require that you uh, separate out the, the contributions of, of your mother and your father. Yeah. And, and that way you can know whether you have two copies or one or zero. You, in fact, since then, the gene, human genome was sequenced. Um, and that was a kind of a amazing accomplishment in such a short period of time, as I remember. It was a big deal when that happened. Yeah, well, it's been announced several times, but <laughs> it, to, a certain, to a certain extent, it hasn't happened really, really? yet. Oh. Uh, yeah, so in 2001, it was a draft sequence. 2004, it was a so-called complete sequence, which means 93%. Um, just this past year, it was 100% complete, but for only one genome. Again, not both your mother and your father. Yeah. And so there is not yet a complete genome for any human being, uh, any real person. Uh, and and even once that's done, I, I still won't consider it a victory until we have it at, at a cost that everybody can afford. Right, right. So, you know, right now we're around 95% at a price that probably everybody could afford if the healthcare system, you know, gets can get probably a tenfold return on investment uh, and provide it for free to everybody. Is that why you've started so many companies? You're really quite a serial entrepreneur. Is it is it with that goal to kind of, uh, by turning it into a company, making it financially stable? Yeah, it's it's almost impossible to do this directly from academia. Uh, you, even if you license it out to a company, they're 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 not likely to pull it off because they don't they don't have the know how or the motivation. The so it's usually are different too, right? Are, yeah. yeah, and so, uh, so but but it's hard to scale it and, and market it and and you know do customer service and all that stuff uh, inside academia. So you really have to have a transition between the two that typically involves some of the people that invented it, like the postdoctoral fellows from my lab, have to accompany it out as kind of a package deal and, and get it going. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I've, I've tried other ways and, the, and it's really, this way works, uh, Good. gets things out there. Yeah. yeah. Why do we want to sequence the human genome or any genome? Have they, they've sequenced what Drosophila, some fruit flies, something, right? We fully sequenced. Um, the only thing that I think is fully sequenced as an animal is, uh, is a nematode. Um, okay. it's a very small genome. And what do we learn from that? I, I think, I don't think we need to sequence the full genome to get most of the societal benefits. And I think, but I think we do need to do human genomes and lots of them. And, and we're doing that now we're doing, um, Hundreds of thousands of human genomes have been sequenced and made available to the public. And this allows us to do, um, I think the most important thing that, that for now anyway, is it allows us to avoid very serious uh, genetic diseases that are typically called re recessive um, and, and they're done by carrier screening. And so this, so this can be done, uh, this could save us trillion dollars a, a year if fully implemented, um, but it already saves a lot of um, uh, very serious diseases that kill, you know, for example, kill children before they're six years old or um, so, so that's the main thing. And then there are other things that can be done that involve um, uh, developing new drugs, uh, developing gene therapies, um, in dealing with the age-related diseases. Those all are greatly uh, helped by uh, human genomes. And then, and then infectious agents, we can, we can get those done in record time now. 
um, because of the same kind of technology. Is that what mRNA, the mRNA process that coming up with the COVID vaccine involved was sequencing the, the COVID? Right. Well, the, yeah. So se- being able to sequence the, the uh, coronavirus genome um, very fast. In, in principle, if you have a new pathogen, you can get it sequenced out to the public, uh, to the to the scientists that need it within a few days. Yeah, it was over a weekend, I think, as I remember. Yeah, and then and then you can go to a prototype vaccine right. quite quickly. It doesn't have to be messenger RNA. It can be also be DNA as well. But essentially all of the um, top vaccines, about, I don't know, five out of the top six, were uh, formulated as gene therapies. And a gene therapy is just, you just write the, in, you, you take the DNA that you just read, and put it into a into a vector, either a lipid vector or a viral protein vector, to get it into the say intramuscular injection is typical, and so that's that's a very that's becoming routine. But it's amazing how quick it wasn't routine three years ago. Uh, and in fact, two new methods, two new gene therapy methods, were uh, incorporated into into the uh, COVID vaccines and approved within eleven months. It's remarkable. Uh, yeah, some of them anyway. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is this a it's a revolution then in in uh, how vaccines can can be developed? I, I think the ability to go from DNA sequence to DNA or RNA vaccines is really a revolution. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and in fact, you can see uh, it was, vaccines were kind of a sleepy technology uh, before COVID, and now they're making vaccines to norovirus and right. and rhinovirus and and you know basically. Uh, uh, pneumonia, and sometimes 20 different strains, Lyme disease, it suddenly has, has gotten a lot of uh, excitement. Every time I go to the doctor, I get a new shot. Uh, yeah. And happily, by the way, I'd much rather have the shot I mean, than the shingles. Yeah, it's funny. We get inoculated to random things every day, you know, where, where we get a cut or right. eat something, uh, breathe in. Uh, we're getting all kinds of random vaccinations. I I would prefer to have non-random ones. So. <laughs> uh, maybe, both. maybe both. A little bit, a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Don't eat dirt, but you know, you don't don't stay away from it either. Uh, yeah. So, boy, there's so many areas I want to I want to talk to you about. You said something uh, interesting: uh, gene therapy. So obviously, you know, uh, the, the initial use to you test the parents to see if they have sickle cell anemia, and then you can. You know, I mean, there's nothing you could do about it, I guess, but you can at least counsel them, right, about about the presence of that gene. You can do it both ways. There now are gene therapies for sickle cell, um, and uh, you can do counseling, which is considerably less expensive. So right. hemoglobinopathies in general, which includes sickle cell, can be up to $3.5 million for gene therapy, but they can wow. be as little as $10 for a, a genetic uh, test and maybe another hundred dollars for the counseling. The, the phrase gene therapy sounds very science fiction. What is, what is gene therapy? What does that involve? Well, it, it really is just usually one gene, uh, but it can be many uh, in, in delivered to um, human cells. Uh, usually in, a, in, it could be intramuscular intravenous uh, and, and that gene then either replaces something that's missing or it uh, provides you with a uh, uh, antigen that you that stimulates your immune system. That's what va- vaccines. Do. And as like I said, vaccines are increasingly formulated as gene therapies. Right. right. So it's just a gene or one or more genes um, put in a form where they will get into the into a particular cell. Uh, it could be targeted for for the cells that you want to uh, impact most. Okay. So and then I was thinking more like. CRISPR, like cutting and pasting genes and, and yeah. chopping them up. We can, we're can we starting to be able to do that as well. Uh, yes and no. I would say uh, first, uh, a, a little appreciated fact, uh, just like it's a little appreciated, we haven't finished the human genome yet. A um, it, it, it little appreciated fact is that 100% of all of the gene therapies that are FDA approved right now, which is 16 different, different gene therapies, None of them involve CRISPR, right? Uh, so, and, and now that'll, that'll change. It'll be, it'll be, you know, ninety percent soon. But uh, 
But I don't think, I think it's likely that it will remain. Most gene therapies will probably not involve CRISPR, partly because they're pre-CRISPR and post-CRISPR technologies that are moving at least as fast. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, to some degree, I kind of got the impression, again, as a complete layman, that CRISPR was a little bit of a disappointment. Is that the case? Uh, I think it's, I think it's good for research. Uh, it, it, there was a lot of hype, uh, right. and, 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 and I have to say I've been the anti-hype, even though I was, you know, benefited, uh, financially from it. Uh, I, I tried to keep, keep people thinking about things, <clears throat> alternatives, because my experience with sequencing is there were always alternatives and they just keep kept replacing previous ones, sometimes with almost no continuity. Like there's almost no relationship between nanopore sequencing and fluorescent sequencing. Um, and then, um, but, but, but it has definitely stimulated, uh, interest. It, it was a catchy term or something. I don't know exactly why it's, I, I think it was just people hadn't been paying attention. Right. And then, and this, this revolution, which was really sequencing and synthesis and, uh, delivery kind of overtook them and they just gave it a name CRISPR, which really doesn't apply to any of those three necessarily. <laughs> That's how it is in this business. Yeah. Uh, and I'm yeah. talking about the, the, the journalism business, we dimly understand what you're doing. And so if we can grab onto something. Well, that, that's our, that's our, that's the scientist's fault. <laughs> no, I they disagree. They don't communicate it. No, I, I it is. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. At it. Yeah. Well, that's, but because you're dealing with such <clears throat> complicated subjects, you're very good though. I have to say you're very good at, at explaining uh, this uh, so that we lay people can understand it. And it's a very exciting you know, I I think a lot of people think that uh, just as the uh, computer revolution really changed our world, the information revolution, that the the genomics, the the synthetic uh, biology revolution is going to change the world. Uh, in fact, I've been hearing that for decades now. Um, right. Are well, we? You're seeing it. You're seeing. You're hearing it and and seeing it in the marketplace. It's so, happening. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It also raises uh, questions, ethical questions that we're not well equipped to deal with. Uh, if it, if you can, um, you know, decide to have more boys than girls, or you can decide you want your boys to be smarter, or all kinds of things. Are we getting closer to that time at frame? And well, well, certainly, boys versus girls is not synthetic biology. It, it's actually it is, easy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's easy via in vitro fertilization. Right, so that's right. That's reproductive technology. That's that's. Uh, it's back to the, but the idea of making superhumans, perhaps super, super. Uh, yeah. So, um, that, that probably is inevitable in a certain sense, in the sense that we're trying to cure diseases and some of the side effects of curing diseases is you create things that, uh, help people that aren't sick. So in other words, if you, if you try to reduce, uh, cognitive decline, let's say in your late 19 you're you're 90 years old um and then you apply that to somebody who's 50 and is not in cognitive decline it might actually right. cause cognitive enhancement right and there's and there's a lot of examples of cognitive enhancement in animal models they might be very specific for a small number of of tests but it it doesn't exclude the possibility they could be they could hit the kind of cognitive that people want so uh, it was, in fact, uh, wasn't that the Chinese scientist who modified the uh, DNA to increase um, uh, resistance to, to disease? Uh, right. So J.K. Huh uh, was in, in prison for three years for right. uh, making t one child, possibly engineering three, but making one of them plausibly resistant to HIV by changing one gene called CCR5. Um, that was already being done in, in uh, adults that had HIV, and it and it uh, showed some promise. Uh, and and there are people walking around that have it naturally that weren't genetically modified that that are uh, HIV resistant. So um, so that's plausible, but you don't need to do engineer the germline, which is what he got in trouble for. Almost everything that you can do um, with gene therapies in 
in uh, germline or reproductive, you know, changing the, the inheritance, you can do uh, after they're born. Um, the only exceptions are things that happen very early in life. And those, I think, fall in the category where genetic counseling will work. Right. I think the, and many of these things can be done without any biology at all. I mean, we're, we're greatly enhanced physically, um, you know, due to jets and forklifts and uh, <laughs> things like, and, you know, better smartphones. So, so you need to focus in on the things that, that you actually can uniquely do with gene therapy. And most of those you can do in adults. You would, you, would you avoid germline therapy or is that something down the road that you think is, well, it's kind of like asking if I would avoid jetpacks. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just don't need a jetpack. Okay, good. <laughs> At this point, I don't really even need jets, you know, because I could go at the speed of light talking to you. Right? That's right. That's right. We didn't have to meet in the middle, yeah, um, even though we're three three time zones apart. Yeah. So uh, you've done some work on uh, aging as well, um, and actually, that raises ethical issues because. What if we could double the human lifespan? Uh, yeah. Should we? Yeah. So uh, I think there are, you know, uh, uh, reasons that come up for why you might not want to. And then there are counter arguments. I think one of them is this uh, is population explosion. Um, that would uh, we're, we're already on our way to uh population stabilization and maybe even implosion because most people are living in cities now and and that number that fraction is increasing and and when they live in cities that there's a tendency to drop family size expectations from around seven children per family down to 1.2 and and it requires 2.1 that's negative growth yeah just just get replacement so 1.2 is negative so you could argue that we maybe need something to hit a balance there. Also, there's some talk uh, that, you know, once we eliminate poverty, then we should probably get off the planet because we're sitting ducks on the planet. And uh, and that also will, would cause a drain. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, so 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 that's population. And then there's uh, then there's the, the possibility that that uh, older people would be rigid and not change their mind um, and then not be flexible. But of course that that's based on the model of current old people. And it's not even true for current old people because um, <laughs> I know a lot of them that are more flexible in their <laughs> views than, than some uh, yeah. knee jerk 20 uh, um, uh, year olds. So setting aside the, the concerns of the ethical concerns, can we extend life? How close are we to doing that? So we have done it in animals um, by a number of different ways. Uh, we have also done aging reversal, which is an easier thing to prove. So, you know, since since the the variation in human lifespan is already you know multi decades, right? Uh, you know, where some people die of you know of age related causes when they're in their sixties, and other people make it to one hundred and ten or more. Um, so to prove that you've actually extended somebody's life might require a pretty big clinical trial with, that lasts for 30 years, which is by then I'll uh, be dead. So that's no good. We got to work. Well, also, whoever funded it will be broke. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. so instead, what you do is you is is you get you do a, a reversal of age related diseases, which, by the way, is also easier to get FDA approval for. Right. And then that same drug, if you're getting at the core of aging, in order just to deal with you know, cardiovascular disease, um, then you, you might have, you might, that same drug might also work for neurodegenerative diseases and maybe even infectious diseases. And so those are almost everything is, has an age related component to it. So, um, so, so I think the answer is, you know, we're making progress, at least two recent gene therapies, which is my favorite way of reversing aging or uh, dealing with age-related diseases. At least two of those have been shown to have the side benefit in in, in animals of of causing um, uh, a shift a shift in average longevity. Right. Uh, even though that wasn't that isn't necessarily how they're going to get approved by the FDA. It's already been shown um, in uh, peer-reviewed papers. 
Do we know why we age? Do we know what the causes of aging are? We, we know that so there's nine or ten pathways that are well known, um, sometimes called hallmarks, uh, and you know things like the the ends of your chromosomes, the telomeres get shorter, uh, your mitochondria get uh, um, dysfunctional, etc. And we, and and for most of those pathways, we have shown that we can reverse them. Hmm. Um, and there's about I don't know, there's maybe eight uh, genes that, that that we and others have used in in various gene therapies and combination therapies uh, that reverse some of those pathways. But I don't think we've quite reversed all ten of them at once. Um, but but we're very close. And it's and, and like most things in biotech and electronics is is getting exponentially better right and like most things at least in my experience in electronics it's simultaneously closer than you think and farther than you might imagine uh it i guess it happened scientific progress does not happen in a in a continuum uh as as you mentioned right. it can it's discontinuous and uh you never yeah. know you know but when it's discontinuous and exponential wow um, don't have, <laughs> you don't have to wait long uh and we didn't have to wait long to get from a completely unaffordable, inaccurate genome to a three hundred dollar well, clinically let's, useful. Let's one. talk about that because you you founded a company a few years ago uh, called Nebula that yeah. is different from the. So right now there are a couple of companies that do, they say DNA t- analysis. I I've done twenty three and me and yeah. spit into a tube and so forth. Right. That's different from full genome sequencing. It's different from what Nebula does. Is that right? That that's right. There there are a few companies that do uh, full genome sequencing. Uh, Nebula is one of the old. What was the first that that brought it down? Um, sort of in the three hundred dollar range. Amazing. Uh, another company that I started, Veritas, was the first to bring it down to thousand dollar range. Right. Before that. Um, I applied for the personal genome project and I wrote, Oh yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't accepted or I don't know. I never, nothing ever happened, but uh, I had read Esther Dyson did it. And one of the things that you were very clear about in the personal genome project is we're going to tell people about your genome. There's no way to keep this private. So we're not going to even make any assertion that there's, that there's any privacy right. here. Right. Uh, and for, I think for a lot of people that probably would scare them off when I told people right. that I had applied, well, we, we wanted to scare off people. Right. Were, right. Yeah. When I told people I was going to do this, they said, well, you should get your permission from your children because, you know, in a way you're, you're giving away this critical information about your other people, not just yourself. Yeah. Well, first, first of all, uh, just because you're giving away your information in the personal genome project doesn't mean that you have to give it away if you get a private genome. Right. So the personal genome project was to enable you to do that in a way that you're fully informed. Right. But you can also get one from Nebula, which is completely. Well, that's what um, I'm curious about. It's changed. Encrypted. Yeah. That's I mean, right. So we have, we have ways that you can ask questions. You and your physician can ask questions of it in a completely encrypted form. Uh, it's got a jargon name of homomorphic encryption query. But the main thing is that you can keep your, your genome encrypted so that, you know, if the government asks for it, you hand it over, but it's encrypted. And, okay. you know, and, and um, but on the other hand, even if you, even if it were public, which which we have now thousands that are public in the personal genome project, you can't tell much about the children because, uh, in principle, if you had like twenty children, you could you could tell something about the parents. Yeah. But if you have if you have one parent or even two parents, you can't tell what any child has right. because of the random right. uh, assortment, and so it's. It's a it was it's a very poor predictor, and even if you had the whole genome of the children, there's not that much you can tell about them um, if they, especially if they've made it to a you know a certain age. That means they've gotten past a lot of the right. most serious diseases. Right. Um, but you should, the point is is not to reassure people about this. Uh, it's to uh, you know maybe they if they're worried then they should go with the the more secure the version. One. Yeah. When I, when I applied for this, I don't think there was an option at that time. I mean, and, but I was perfectly, yeah. there's still not really an option. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you can, you can, Oh, you mean that you know, privacy it wasn't option. Really a good yeah. way of getting a commercial private genome. Yes. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, 
I, 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 I was hurt that I was not accepted. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure it, uh, I'm sure there is. It was probably a time where we were having trouble paying for all the genomes. Yeah. Uh, well, there was, and there it was, was such ex- enthusiasm for it. Exactly. Know? It was expensive. It was, I think, $10,000 at the time. Uh, uh, when so we started, it was, I think it was, it had, we had brought it down to 350,000. So, so we actually <laughs> sold through, through a, a third company that I start, uh, well, the first of three was called Gnome. Um, and, th- and that sold its genomes for $350,000 to fairly high net worth individuals. Yes. Uh, some of which became investors. Yes. Um, and I started that about the same time that I helped Ann Wojcicki start, uh, 23 and me. So you were yeah, involved so in, that. in 2007. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but they were, they were very far apart in, in their business model. One was, more focused on ancestry and kind of exploring uh, common alleles, things that are that are so common in the population that, that both alleles, both variations that uh, are harmless or, 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 you know, normal wild type. Yeah, I mean, I got the impression that it was almost a statistical uh, uh, result rather than a, a personal result. Is that the, is that accurate? No, it was, well, yeah, it was statistical in the sense that you could take a common allele and infer what might be nearby that might be rarer and more ah. uh, disease oriented, but it wasn't, it wasn't really good enough. Uh, what you really need to do is sequence the, the causative variation. Uh, and that's what whole genome sequencing gets for you. I mean, we, we were only doing about, um, a, f- a tiny fraction of a percent of the genome for 23andMe. Um, yeah. But but even Gnome was doing 90 plus percent. So now we can do... a lot more expensive. It was like, you know, $99 awesome. or 350000 Yeah. Yeah. But now they're very close to the same price. That's uh, interesting. Small. And yeah. what? And I think, you know, I, I did it. Uh, my kids did it. My, my Everybody in my family, my parents did it. Uh, I, I, somewhat out of curiosity, you're right, it was about the, you know, the, the genetic... Uh, um, you know, the ancestry, ancestry, but, uh, there was always that kind of interest in your medical history and information. Can we, we know now more if I did, if I did nebula, for instance, what kind of information would I get? What can my doctor do with that? Well, the most useful thing, uh, is for, you know, people that are of reproductive age, um, can find out if they're carriers uh, of of a serious disease and, and either, you know, they can decide on who to date uh, based on that information. (laughs) So Uh, you might want to say, Hey, before I date you, you've got to do this so that we can make sure that we're okay. Well, yeah. I mean, if if you do it before you even meet a person, then you never really know what you're missing. You're missing (laughs) at most 3% of the, of the people uh, that that you would uh, otherwise meet. Right. Um, but practically, you know, people wait until later when it's the longer you wait, the the, the more and more uh, critical it becomes. Right. Uh, so if you wait until you're you've already got a pregnancy, then you're facing um, potential termination uh, or or either spontaneous abortion because they're so sick right. Uh, right. or, or uh, elective. What? So, yeah. There's still somewhat of a it, people do it somewhat out of curiosity as much as anything else I would guess still yeah uh, th- that may be but the, the, it really should be uh, treated as uh, um, a very cost effective preventative medicine okay um, and are physicians uh, aware of this are they increasingly using this kind of information? It's, it's, it's a slow revolution. Uh, I mean, the, the technological part of it was fast, but I think the societal part, right. th- there will probably be some point where this is suddenly everybody wakes up. I, I remember, you know, there was a time where nobody wanted to use cell phones because they were afraid they were going to melt their head. Uh, and <laughs> there was a time where nobody wanted to use seatbelts for similarly right. rational reasons. And, and, and then there's just suddenly it just shifts. I mean, sometimes it's government action where they, they put, the Surgeon General has determined on the cigarette tax, and sometimes it's uh, some influential personality who, who uh, you know, has a 
personal story that affects people. I don't know what it's going to be in this case, but right. uh, it I've, will happen. There is a, a, a reference genome, right, for, for the human genome. There is. It's more like a, a mixture. Uh, I mean, the, because you want to have want to represent the diversity of the planet, and that there are definitely certain populations that have you know thousands of new genes relative to another. Uh, population. So, you, so the reference really has to uh, represent uh, some diversity. It doesn't have to. You don't necessarily have to have eight billion people as part of the reference. That right. would kind of defeat the purpose <laughs> of a reference. But you need more than one. It's, is it safe to one. say there are eight billion possible? I mean, there, there everybody's genome is oh, unique, right? Yeah. Even in even uh, identical twins, even your left and right arm have some differences. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's somatic variation. Um, there's about you know somewhere between ten and a hundred changes per generation. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of variation, but most of it's neutral. It doesn't really right. impact your health. And is there still a lot uh, of the genome that we don't understand, or that we uh, I've heard it referred to as junk oh, yeah. junk DNA? And well, I, uh, people use the term junk DNA less. I, I did my thesis on two. Um, regions that, that one might have thought were junk and turned out I, I showed they weren't. Um, um, but there's a lot that we don't know. And and there's even a lot that we may not need to know. Uh, so, you know, there's, a, for example, you know, some of the favorite organisms for engineering for industrial purposes and agricultural purposes. Uh, you can do a lot of amazing engineering um, only knowing a little bit. It's kind of like you can do a lot of uh, engineering in in uh, mechanical terms with a limited part of the periodic table. You know, right. just got a long way with just, you know, iron and copper and a, you know, right. Right. a few other things. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, a project you've been working on to bring back the mastodon. Um, uh, Not slight, exactly bring slight, it back. Slight nuance there is <laughs> we're actually trying to make cold-resistant elephants uh, <laughs> right. and we're using mammoth DNA to inspire us, not necessarily to compulsively go for the whole, although I think we will develop technology that where we could do every single base pair change, but probably by the time we get to that, it'll be considered diminishing returns. I'm not going to channel Jeff Goldblum and say you shouldn't do it just because you can. <laughs> we're not, right. we're not close to Jurassic park, I guess is the, <laughs> Although I wouldn't mind hopefully, seeing a woolly yeah. mammoth wander around once in a while. Yeah, well, hopefully we will have something that looks and acts right. and survives uh, minus forty winters, just like a woolly mammoth. But Let's, it, it may be it may be a very small number of genes we have to oh, change to achieve okay. that. And the re and the, let's talk about the reason why you would want to bring back cold resistant uh, elephants. Uh, so elephants are uh, so called keystone species in almost all the environments they've been in. They've been uh, populated almost every continent of the planet um, at some point in history, and there, there, the, the we if we think of this as rewilding, so we're interested in endangered species and making the especially the ones that have a, a strong positive impact on the environment, either greater diversity or something that humans want. In this case, um, it would be both. In the Arctic, the, the environment is much less diverse and uh, is releasing a lot of methane uh, due to the warming of the soil. Last time I was in Siberia um, um, a couple of years ago, it was the first time in history that the, the summer thaw was not refrozen during the winter. Mm. So that's, and the, the Arctic in general is going up in its um, temperature about four times faster than most other parts of the planet. So anyway, that's releasing methane and the elephants as a keystone species uh, uh, would enable other herbivores to um, maintain a grassland, which is what it was for, for many millennia. Um, and that would result in better photosynthesis, better uh, reflecting of, of heat and, uh, and, and better um, conduction of the winter wind by, by allowing the, herbivores to trample it so uh so so there are reasons for endangered species there are reasons for um 
restoring the Arctic diversity, and the main one being that we can uh, sequester carbon and keep it sequestered better. Um, Elephants knock down trees, I've seen you say. They yes. trample the grass. Uh, right. It's, it's it, you know, I you often think of uh, insect species like bees as being important uh, to the ecosystems. But, you, but a, a giant thing like an elephant, you feel like, well, how much impact could an elephant have? It obviously can have quite a bit of an impact in, in an yeah, area like that. And, the and there's precedent for this sort of thing of bringing back one keystone species in order to achieve great change. So in Yellowstone, the, the wolves have been gone for 70 years. We first people eliminated them and then people brought them back. And when they brought them back, they uh, intimidated the, the larger herbivores like deer and elk, uh, which allowed the willows and other trees to finally grow. They had been gone for most of those 70 years. And then when they came back, the beavers started turning them into um, uh, homes that would alter the, the create lakes and rivers and, uh, and hence would affect the waterfowl and the fish and the amphibians. Just, it just ramified throughout the entire Yellowstone park area in a way that was well, well documented. So this is one species um that had such a positive impact. Isn't that um, interesting? And, and that's been repeated for maybe a thousand different uh, rewilding events worldwide um, since then. It, it, my natural inclination is, God, these ecosystems are so complex. How can we know how, what levers to pull uh, and, and, and what consequences they, they might have? But well, I guess it's the same thing we say about uh, gene splicing and, and everything that we're talking about. Uh, and medicine. I mean, medicine. medicine I guess the human right. body is incredibly complicated. Right. I think what happens is you need to do it in such a manner that you have thought through in advance how you might reverse it, uh, how you might keep it contained. Uh, you know, for example, in medicine, you might do a, a clinical trial that involves one or two people. And then if something goes wrong, that's a, a tragedy for one or two people, but at least you didn't like introduce it to millions of people on day one. Um, and the same thing goes for ecosystems. You can try it out on a small scale, Good. especially if they're large animals. If yeah. you introduce a bunch of uh, bacteria or mos mosquitoes or something, those are, that's a little hard to reverse. Um, but, but large animals uh, relatively easy. You also invented, from the macro, from the from the cold resistant elephant to the 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 micro, you also uh, have come up with a use of DNA for detecting dark matter. Yeah, so I've I've had a number of pleasant interactions uh, with physics colleagues, and and that was one that that uh, some group uh, years later used it. Uh, for uh, detecting other kinds of uh, particles. Um, <laughs> it's, it's still unknown exactly what dark matter is. Uh, there's there's a recent, uh, I think, intriguing um, hypothesis for what dark energy is involving black holes. But uh, I think we're still, uh, uh, anyway, it was, it was a general particle detector. Uh, um, it was it was fun to, we didn't, we didn't <laughs> manufacture the detector, but it was, uh, in principle, much, much cheaper than the, the other existing detectors at the time. Is there anything genes can't do? Kind of, kind, <laughs> kind, of, kind of amazing. If you could live forever, would you want to live forever? Uh, forever is a long time. I'd, I'd you know, take it a little bit at a time and see how it goes. <laughs> a little longer. <laughs> it's, it's just it's what's hard to, you know, people who say they want to uh, live a normal lifetime I, you know, I just wonder whether most people are not willing to commit suicide. Uh, and if you're very healthy and youthful, I think it would be hard to say no to another couple of days to say no to seeing your great grandchildren yeah. and get married. Yeah. I, so I think it's naive to, to just casually say, oh, I'm going to willingly die at age 70, even if I feel like I'm 25. Right. I think that's it, it's a little hard right. to say. No, that's a good point. Um, 
and I'm open to any ideas you have. <laughs> I mean, the, the funny thing is we all know already a great number of things we could do to improve a quality of life and aging. Uh, doesn't mean we do them. Uh, being much nicer yeah. to take a pill. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, I know, Nebula, uh, you use a Chinese company to do the sequencing. Is that correct? Uh, ne- Nebula is and, and Veritas uh, uh, have their own instruments. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, some of those are, uh, most of them are from Illumina, but they're also from, uh, use uh, Oxford Nanopore, which is a, a UK-United States collaboration. Some of their MGI, which started as CGI in California um, and is now um, merged with BGI in uh, China. And uh, Ultima is a new one uh, that, that we're using as well. So, so it's, a, it's a mixture. And I'm, I'm sure if, uh, if a particular client wants to use only one technology, that, that okay. could be arranged. I just, yeah. I, given the recent concerns about Chinese spying and so forth, I, I think people might be a little concerned about saying, well, you're going to send my, yeah. my gen- gen- I, I like to encourage people to be concerned. Some, some people think scientists are supposed to reassure us. I think scientists are, should be uh, open to to people's concerns and take them seriously, and and I think that I would worry about spying um, by Californians yeah, as much as anybody true. else. You know? uh, I, I think I, I think that uh, you need to uh, uh, if you want if if you want it to be private, there are ways that you can build into the the hardware uh, encryption so that it's always encrypted so it's never there's never a decrypted form of it and mm. getting back to the we can now do ask questions of it a limited number of questions uh not enough to figure out the genome but enough to to answer your medical needs uh, so you could have it you know cradle to grave encrypted um so if we want that we could we could do that uh, but then the other thing we have to deal with is if people want your genome enough, all they have to do is follow you around um, because because you're like spewing genome from, from every part of your body all day long. So so the, the only way to really keep your genome safe, it's, it's not who you choose to sequence your genome. It's it's more a matter of uh, staying inside your house. Not That's going a good out. point. I didn't even think about it. Although I remember the movie Gattaca where he was trying to scrub all the dead skin off so that yeah, he was trying to clean up his keyboard and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, and that's that's real. Uh, that you can sequence a person's genome from one cell, uh, and it can be a dead cell. Right. Um, and, and we've sequenced DNA that's up to 2 million years old. Uh, so uh, watch out if, if you're worried about that. But I don't think you really need to worry about that that much, at least not, not right. yet. But I'm not trying to reassure anybody here. I'm just no, no. I'm not reassured. Good news. (laughs) In fact, you just scared me even more because as it becomes cheaper and cheaper and more available to to sequence, uh, uh, I'm going to start keeping my nail clippings and my uh, hairbrush away from uh, the the people because uh, it's all there. And, 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 and your coffee cups and, uh, and for your dandruff, uh, et cetera. So, uh, you know, head and shoulders is going to make a tidy profit. (laughs) Really, even from dandruff, we've uh, we have uh, recreated a couple of uh, germ sequences. I thought were kind of interesting. One was the nineteen eighteen uh, flu from right. from a fella who uh, was frozen in the right. in the earth. Yeah, um, are we? And getting- we can also reconstruct all, uh, old things that are you know, found in our genome, we reconstructed an ancient retrovirus from the human, uh, that's present in everybody's genome, but, uh, it decayed a little bit. Uh, you can reconstruct that. Yeah. Uh, also risky. Yeah. Yeah. I, and they've, they've also made uh gain of function, um, viruses. So things that don't exist in nature right. that are worse than things, the pathogens in nature. And they did that without, uh, general, consensus on it in advance it was basically they submitted it to journal was the first time that anybody outside their lab knew about it right and that's probably i think with hindsight and maybe some people would have said with foresight uh that's not a good idea and it's um that's what the wuhan lab sure. in china but it's, was but it's a, it's a, yeah that was uh 
Weren't they doing gain of function research? Well, they, they've done gain of function in almost every major uh, country. I think, I think the, um, I think the the gain of function for flu. There was one for flu and pox virus. Those were done in the United States, yeah. England, and Australia. Yeah, we've so yeah, uh, and there's reason to do that. There's just as there's reason to resurrect the 1918 flu virus. Uh, that's yes, a, there is. It's, yeah. it's, it, it can be justified uh, uh, in that we want to get ahead of these things before they appear. Um, it's not. And, and and it's and it's hard to say oh we're going to figure it out and then keep it secret um, because then somehow it'll it'll get into the wrong hands and then only the people with, with the wrong hands have it uh, so if you're going to do it probably make it public um, anyway yeah. arguments can be made on both sides yeah. I, I personally don't do that research uh, right. but I'm not necessarily judging people who do. And speaking of hands, I have to ask you about the doomsday clock because you're now uh, on the on the board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I see. Right, right. Do you get to vote on the on the stat on the status of the doomsday clock? I think uh, yes, uh, but I think my my vote has about as much sway as my vote <laughs> in the last presidential election. Uh, oh, there are a lot of a lot of you, eh? There, there's a lot of people voting on that clock. And, and it seems like there's some kind of uh, market forces that keep the clock very close to midnight. Uh, it, it's more exciting when it's it, or more depressing when it's close to midnight, um, more alarming. And, and we deserve to be alarmed, quite frankly. I mean, there's all sorts of things we're doing in terms of new forms of warfare, you know, testing them out on Ukrainians. Um New, uh, you know, cyber warfare, um, um, bio warfare, uh, and all these things are, are unnecessary, I think, to maintain. In fact, they're contrary to maintaining a high standard of living. Um, I mean, Russia almost went broke uh, uh, competing with America on on the um, Cold War. Right. Um, right. And, and I, all of these things have uh, economic consequences. It, um, it would be better if everybody worked on eliminating diseases of poverty, working on better educational systems and so forth. And then we would have a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle. You strike me as an optimist. Are you an optimist? I don't think it's that simple. I, you know, I think I can see a pathway, but I am pessimistic in that I don't see people following that pathway. Um, so, so uh, I think eventually they do. It's just uh, will they do have it a time is the question, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they have. A, I think we. I should include myself a little bit here. Uh, have uh, we humans have a tendency to ignore things that have a risk of less than one percent? Yeah. Uh, maybe even for some people, less than ten percent. So you say, oh, ninety percent chance of winning. I'm going to Vegas, right? Makes right. sort of it makes sense when you frame it that way. When you say, well. A ten percent chance of dying uh, if I keep doing what I'm doing—that doesn't sound good, especially if it's ten percent compounded daily or annually or something like that. And that means you're pretty much for sure going to screw up the planet. Uh, so, I, you know, I think maybe we should just drop all education except for risk as, uh, assessment. I mean, it'd be valuable you know, to understand a lot of things we learn in school. We never use in our profession, right? And 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 one of the major things we don't learn in school apparently is how to risk assessment. Right, we're terrible with probability. Uh, <laughs> completely enumerate. It, yeah, it's mostly it's mostly low probabilities applied to our personal decisions. Right, we would prefer to take a risk. You know, it's kind of like, well, look, you know, the the heroes in World War II they took risks. Why shouldn't we? You know, it's yeah, yeah. it's like why should we if <laughs> if we have an alternative? I think the heroes in World War II really had. No alternative. Right. Uh, what is it? What's what's going on right now that you're most excited about that you're working on? Uh, we've touched touched on uh, a lot of them. Uh, certainly, uh, aging reversal would be handy for getting me a few more years. As, of, as we uh, get into our sixties, George, <laughs> we're both yeah. very interested in this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sixty eight, but yeah. but it's not it's not just selfish. I think I I think you know. Um, a number of people that have been educated for 60 years um, 
that's a that's a precious resource, and we shouldn't just throw it out because you know it, it would be like uh, you know spending sixty years building a supercomputer and programming it and so forth, and then the day that you would turn it on, you, instead you you recycle it, right? Um, you know, and turn it into you know you know soda cans and stuff. Uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. Right. Uh, so actually, but, that's uh, the argument for, I mean, you know, from a purely biological point of view, there's no reason for us to exist once we've reproduced. But uh, there's the argument for it. We've got. Yeah, but except, except a huge fraction of, of our evolution has, has in, enhanced our ability to live beyond reproduction. Right. I mean, right. even even as cave dwellers, we had a, we had a value added by the grandparents and in some cases, even great grandparents uh, that, that existed long before advanced medicine. And, and they, they're the ones that remember that floods happen every, you know, 50 years and, and you have to prepare for droughts and famines and, and so forth. And it's that, it's that uh, memory, you know, you can see that wars happen when, when all the people that suffer from the wars die off. Uh, then everybody everybody thinks, oh, it was very glorious, and so let's do another one. Um, so I think we, I think there's uh, there's some benefit there. But you asked what I was excited about. Uh, another thing I'm excited about. I mean, almost anything has really kind of basic science and societal benefit gets me excited. And one that we recently just just published in preprint form, and hopefully it'll be out. Um, it's been accepted at major journal peer review is we we found a way to make uh, an organism resistant to all viruses, including viruses we've never seen before. And we proved this by going out and collecting uh, um, sewage samples and farm samples that, that had that had completely unknown viruses in them uh, and showed that it was resistant not only to all the laboratory strains, but all these wild strains as well. Um, and uh, and we did it by a method that I think is completely general. We can now make any organism, in principle, resistant to all viruses um, by just just swapping uh, two amino acids, serine and leucine, at a particular place in the in, in at multiple places throughout the genome. Wow, that sounds yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah, that's you asked me what I'm excited about. That's, that's exciting. That's, that's an example. That's an example. Yeah, it's not the only example. There are a few others. But yeah. That, that's uh that you know you work on something for a while and then it finally arrives that's uh, amazing yeah well it's been a great honor and a privilege to talk to you uh, dr church uh the work you're doing the work you've done um transformational and uh you know thank you a grateful you. a grateful country thanks you <laughs> we really well, appreciate it, and it, I, it it's it, it it's sufficient just to see um these things used in in in, um, in medicine and agriculture, and maybe even ecosystems. Soon. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a mastodon once in a while. I think it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Church. I appreciate you joining us. Have a great day. My my pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. You. What a thrill to talk to a Professor George Church. Uh, I should mention that Nebula, his uh, his genome sequencing company, is open to all at nebula.org. Um, if you're interested, uh, his book, Regenesis, is uh, still available on Amazon. He wrote it a few years ago. There are a number of TED Talks featuring Dr. Church if you want to know more about the woolly mammoths and uh, some of his other projects. But we're so glad we were able to get him uh, for an hour today on Triangulation. Thanks for joining us. As you know, Triangulation is not an every week event. It's whenever I can find somebody that I really want to talk to. Uh, we have been doing a lot more lately, and uh, I hope we will do more. One of the reasons we can is because of Club Twit. So I want to thank our Club Twit members and remind you that if you're not a member, your $7 a month can make such a difference keeping us on the air, keeping our employees hired, and, and doing shows like this, shows without advertising because of our Club Twit members. Uh, you don't just get all of our shows ad-free. You get shows we don't put out any other place, like Hands on Macintosh, Hands on Windows, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz. You also get access to a really great community in our Club Twit Discord. Thousands of people in there, all like you, with an interest in technology uh, and geek subjects, everything from anime to cooking to travel to beer. If you're not a member, 
please consider joining. We really appreciate it. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. And I thank our Club Twit members for making this possible. I thank you for joining me. We'll see you next time on Trangulation. Bye-bye. Do you want to hear about the latest news happening in the tech world from the people who write the article, sometimes from the people who are actually making the news? Well, we got a show for you here at Twit.tv. It's called Tech News Weekly. Me, Jason Howell, and my co-host, Micah Sargent, we talk with some amazing people each and every Thursday on Tech News Weekly, and we share a little bit of our own insights in each of us bringing a story of the week. That's at Twit.tv slash TNW. Subscribe right now.